Hey, Rachel, what's the deal with Metoxo? You mean, like, is it available over the counter? What? No, no, no. Metoxo. Oh, wait, the Lava Man? Right, that guy. So, Kurt Busick mentioned that in X-Men 48, it says that in the next issue, Beast and Iceman will face the fury of Metoxo the Lava Man. But they don't. They fight Mesmero and the Demi-Men. Yeah, Metoxo kind of fell through the sales cracks. Or oozed, I guess, given that he's a Lava Man. How so? Well, in 1968, Marvel decided to try splitting the team for a while and have each issue focus on one or two characters. But it wasn't really selling, so they decided at the last minute, number 48, to get the band back together, but they either forgot to change the Metoxo blur, but they didn't have time before it went to press. Well, that sucks. Metoxo the Lava Man is pretty much the greatest name ever. Did he ever show up? Man, you know, I don't know, but you know what? I bet Kurt Busiek does. Hey, Kurt, what happened to Metoxo? I got to introduce him. 1993 or 1994 Marvel Holiday Special, I think. They asked me if I wanted to do a uh, holiday story featuring the X-Men, and I asked... Can I right a wrong? Can I overturn a, a years-long injustice and introduce Metoxo the Lava Man? <laughs> so I ended up doing a, a story with the modern-day Beast and Iceman getting involved in a storyline that involved them flashing back to 1968 when they met Metoxo the Lava Man and taught him the meaning of Christmas. What?! Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 21st episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So when we were first talking about doing this podcast back in fall of 2013, we had one goal. That was to get one specific person onto the show and to have them explain one specific thing. And this is the episode where we're actually doing it. So after this, we just don't have to record the podcast anymore. We're done, right? We've accomplished our goals. Yeah, it becomes optional from this point on. We have here with us one of our favorite writers, Kurt Busick. You know him from Marvels and just about every Marvel ongoing series, oddly except for X-Men. Ton of DC, Astro City, Conan. I know I'm forgetting things because you have written all of the comics. I tried to. But I want to talk to you about an X-Men thing because it is my understanding that the Phoenix retcon is your fault. Uh, sort of. So before we dive into that, we should give the listeners a little bit of a backstory in case they're not familiar with the Marvel landscape at the time of this monumental rewrite. Okay, Jean Grey died for the first time in X-Men 101. She was landing a space shuttle, and the radiation shielding on most of it had gone out. Crash landed in Jamaica Bay. She died, but then resurfaced as Phoenix. For a while, she was in the X-Men as Phoenix, this sort of uh, entity that we that became clearer and clearer. She had this immense amount of cosmic power. Ultimately, she ended up getting manipulated using some strange flashbacks to hundreds of years ago and brainwashing into getting darker and darker and becoming Dark Phoenix. At which point she committed genocide. Yeah, there was a uh, planet of sort of broccoli-looking people, and the phoenix just sort of burned out the sun and killed them all at once. And that wasn't cool. Then she died. She um, sacrificed herself to keep from going dark phoenix again in X-Men 137 on the moon. And it's my understanding that at that point, Jim Shooter basically said that she couldn't come back, that she'd crossed a moral event horizon, and that she had to stay dead no matter what. And uh, actually, the original plan was to just depower her and keep her alive. And you can even still read the original comic as written. But Jim Shooter, who was editing at the time, said, no, we can't do that and turned into one of the more effective X-Men stories ever. Fast forward to 1986. Jean Grey has been dead for six years at this point, which is a really long time in comics time. And, you know, the original X-Men, they've sort of moved on. They're they're soundly failing at civilian life at this point. Uh, what are they doing? Well, Bobby's an accountant. Hank is trying to get back into academia 
I think he ends up taking off his pants in the middle of an interview and jumping out a window, which is honestly like up there on my bucket list. You know, every job I've gotten, the interview's gone that way. It's worked out every time. Yeah, but you work in comics. Good point. Warren is is swooping. That's pretty much his Um, thing. I think he's he's basically just being rich and hanging out with Kendi Southern. And Scott is in Alaska, and he is married to Madeline Pryor, who he at this point doesn't know is a clone of Jean Grey. Oh, uh, we're going to get to that. It's going to cover like <laughs> like 40 episodes, but we're not there yet. So at this point, Marvel uh, wanted to launch another book called X-Factor, which was going to be the original five X-Men. The only catch is there were only four original X-Men still alive. So Jean had to come back, and how are we going to do this? So, Kurt, I think this is where you come in. Actually, uh, I come in back in 1980, before Jean died. Um, Back then, I wasn't a a professional comics writer yet. I was a college student. I spent some time hanging around with uh, Richard Howell and Carol Kalish. Richard went on to become a comic book writer and artist. Carol went on to become the vice president of direct sales at Marvel. But at the time, they were living in Cambridge and uh, working for a uh, distribution company, I believe. We heard through the grapevine. They were friends with Peter Sanderson. Peter Sanderson was friends with pretty much most of the people at Marvel. So all of this about Gene dying, we heard about it before it was published. And we thought that this was a dumb idea, killing off one of the original X-Men when the original X-Men, they, those original five, are such a great team together, just seemed like, oh, this is a bad idea. And worse, it's happening by mistake. It's happening because John Byrne drew in Gene killing off the Debari, that's the Broccoli people, that wasn't in the plot. It got published because whoever was reading out the book hadn't noticed it. It was all built on this succession of unintended consequences. Wait, so the that, that whole plot point was just because of a miscommunication between Byrne and Claremont? Yeah. They were co-plotting the book at the time, and I don't remember whether the original plot said she blows up a sun or devours a sun. She wreaks havoc in space or whatever, but John was drawing it, and he said, okay, I'm going to cut to a planet around that sun and show these aliens who showed up for the first time in Avengers number four, and it's going to be their home planet, and oh my god. So that wasn't in the plot. That was just something John added in while he was drawing it. Okay, and then with the the mighty Marvel manner, then Claremont just had to sort of write dialogue reflecting what was already in the art at that point. Yeah. It was all happening just kind of very organically. Nobody intended to get to that particular point. They were just taking it step by step. Before the issue came out, Richard, Carol, and I spent an evening sitting around talking about what we liked about the original X-Men and how it was too bad they weren't going to exist as a group anymore. And for fun, we came up with ways, how could you bring her back? We hadn't seen her die yet, <laughs> but we just came up with ideas on how, how you could bring her back. My idea was the, the one that ultimately got published, that Phoenix had never been Jean that Jean was still in the bottom of Jamaica Bay, and she was kind of this lens that the Phoenix entity was focused through and projecting an image of Jean. And the further away that image got from its generation point, the more distorted it got. And that was why it was turning into Dark Phoenix and getting evil and so forth. And it was that that died. I should add here, we heard about Jim Shooter's rule. And the rule wasn't Jean can't be brought back. The rule was Jean can't be brought back unless she's brought back in a way that makes her innocent of genocide. And that was like throwing down a glove. It was like, oh, I can do that. (laughs) I can figure out a way around that. That was just an idea that we had come up with just for the fun of it the fanish pleasure of talking about the characters. I was not thinking the idea would ever be used 
flash forward from 1980 to 1982, I sold my first comic scripts, and I was writing Power Man and Iron Fist. And in 1983, I went to a convention in Ithaca, New York, and I was spending time with Roger Stern and his wife, Carmela. At lunch, Roger and I were talking about how much we liked the original X-Men, and Roger said, yeah, it's just a shame you can't ever have them back together again. And I said, oh, but there's a way. And he <laughs> We've said, covered this. He said, no, 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 you can't, because Jim has this rule. And I said, yeah, I know about Jim's rule. You want to hear how you get around it? He said, sure. So I told him my idea, and he said, oh, that's a really cool idea. And as far as I was concerned, that was the end of it. We it was just, just a one-off conversation. Just a couple of guys talking. We both like comics. We both like those comics. What I didn't know, sometime after that, Roger was talking to John Byrne, and Roger said, oh, by the way, a guy told me a way that, you know, you could bring Gene back. Uh, and John said, no, 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 Jim's rule. And he, no, no, this is a way around the rule. And when John heard that Bob Layton was doing this X Factor book, and at that point the plan had been for X Factor to be the original, the surviving original four X-Men plus Dazzler. That, oh, would have, that would have been a very different book. Yeah, that's. I'm trying to imagine how that would have gone. It would have been way more fabulous. It, it would have been way more fabulous. <laughs> so John told Bob the idea, and Bob said, hey, that's a pretty cool idea. And John and Bob went to Shooter and said, here's this idea for how we can bring Jean back. And Shooter said, well, that, that works. That gets her back. That fulfills my rules. She's not guilty of, of genocide. So yeah, you can do that. By this time... I'm working at Marvel as the assistant editor on Marvel Age magazine. So I was in the bullpen using hot wax to paste up illustrations on a, a mechanical board to putting together an issue. And this guy I'd never seen before kind of oozes up to me and says, I hear I've got you to thank for the return of Gene Gray. And I said, huh? <laughs> because I didn't know it was Bob Layton. I didn't know Gene was coming back. I hadn't talked to anybody about this for three years. I had to get caught up on this. Bob explained what was going on. I talked to uh, Roger that night, and he told me the part of the story I'd missed. I actually got to do an issue of Marvel Age where we interviewed John, Roger, we interviewed Bob, possibly Claremont as well. And the interviews were all done straight. And then in order to protect the spoilers, I actually put black tape over the text anytime <laughs> they mentioned what the big secret was. Like in, redacting it, a government document. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So every time they gave me credit for the story, I covered it up. That reminds me, I feel vaguely like we should maybe go back to the number seven cold open and do an unredacted version now that Corsair's return has actually been covered in the comic. Oh, right. After we uh, bleeped uh, Greg out as he was talking about the completely not at all how it happened thing. Yeah, he was telling no, us about. that was amazing. It involved some back alley soft drink bottling. It did. Yeah, it was pretty phenomenal. <laughs> I wonder if those interviews still exist. They were published in Marvel Age, but they were published redacted. Yeah. So if the text for them, unredacted, exists somewhere, Marvel could stick it in a trade paperback or something. It's some sort of historical document. You know, there's a place that actually might have it, it occurs to me. There's a blog that specifically collects unpublished Marvel material. And they've got, you know, the one drawn page that would have been the Metaxo story in the Silver Age uh -huh. up on that. Oh, I need to see and that. I, I will find it. We will we will link to it in the as mentioned from this episode, too. I feel like if, if it were going to turn up anywhere, that's probably where it would be. I would bet if it's anywhere, it's in Jim Salakrup's apartment somewhere and it will never be seen again because it's under a stack of things that's under a stack of things that's behind a couple of bookshelves and so forth and so on until you get to the walkway. So I like the idea of all of these things pocket dimension connecting to each 
each other. So there's there's <laughs> Jim Selkrup's apartment and Tom Wozniakowski's filing cabinets, and it'd be like Walter Simonson's original line art. And someday, um, like alien anthropologists are going to be digging through all the stuff and, re- and wondering how, like you know, the Gettysburg Address factors into the resurrection of Jean Grey with no distinction between fiction and reality. Oh, that continuity actually creates physical wormholes. Oh, this is getting really, this really complex. This is good. I like this. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I have to butt in with my traditional disclaimer on this story. We started off by you saying that the uh, the resurrection was my fault. And I said, <laughs> sort of. The actual truth is it was my idea, but not my fault. <laughs> but it wouldn't have happened without that idea. I didn't pitch it. I didn't approve it. I didn't write it. I didn't draw it. I don't know, man. So, I think you're the Robert Oppenheimer of the Phoenix retcon. I, I, I now want a t-shirt yes. that identifies me as the Robert Oppenheimer of the Phoenix Redcon. That can happen. <laughs> okay. We know a guy who silk screens. <laughs> so the way this turned out, I mean, Jean Grey was then a part of the Marvel Universe for just decades to come until she died once or twice more, and now she's been dead for quite a while. But I mean, yeah, we wouldn't have gotten a lot of the stories we had. We wouldn't have gotten pretty much everything that identified the first 60-something issues of X-Factor without that. That impresses the hell out of me, that we could take the Dark Phoenix saga and not compromise that story, that you found a way to still bring Jean back without taking the weight away from that. Well, back when I was in high school, we had a group of comic book fans that would have lunch together. And one of the things we would do was I had a challenge out there. You cannot kill off a character. You cannot come up with a way to kill off a character without me coming up with a way for how to bring them back. (laughs) Um, Marvel has run with that tradition. Well, a lot of people say that the fact of death being sort of, you know, this optional revolving door in the Marvel Universe dates to the resurrection of Gene. But Professor X came back from being dead Earlier, To be fair, he, he was generally faking his death. Well, except that he wasn't. That he was faking his death was a retcon. <laughs> he died in X-Men 43, and the intent was for him to be dead. It was one of the things they were doing to shake up the X-Men and say, this series hasn't been working. Maybe the reason it hasn't been working is they have an adult boss who tells them what to do, and if we get rid of him and they have to step up and, and be responsible for themselves, that'll be exciting. Um, and apparently it didn't sell very well. So eventually, in the second to last issue of the series, they decided we're going to bring him back. And the way they were going to bring him back was have him show up and say, well, I've been in the basement the whole time. I've been working on this secret plan to stop these alien invaders that we're going to take care of in about 10 pages. And this other guy who you saw once was actually pretending to be me, and he was the one who died. And that, in fact, was the inspiration for how Gene came back. Oh, no, no. (laughs) That Phoenix, that 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 was some other guy, and Gene was in the basement the whole time. Except in that case, it was the it was the bottom of Jamaica Bay. And as with the Changeling, you laid the foundation for then decades of increasingly improbable Phoenix retcons. <laughs> Says AVX is all well, on you, man. To, to be fair, her name is Phoenix. This Point. is what Phoenixes do. It's kind of baked in. It's true. So we did, I think, what. Three episodes on the Silver Age, right, Rachel? Yeah, we did the basic foundation stuff, we did the villains, and then we did alternate takes on the Silver Age. And when we did alternate takes on the Silver Age, we very deliberately skipped probably the really big one, specifically in anticipation of this, which was Marvels. And and now after four months of people saying, why didn't you do Marvels? We can answer. It's because the Changeling replaced it. Wait, no. (laughs) Um, I I was in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) We're in a basement right now, technically. What does this mean? Ideally, it means that the Pineview Alumni Association finally thinks we're dead. (laughs) Ha ha ha. 
But yeah, so I mean, you know, you, you obviously have a huge love for the Silver Age having done Marvels and also like you and Rachel, I know Rachel, you mentioned that you guys have been talking on Twitter for a long time about Silver Age stuff. Before the podcast started, I was, I think at some point complaining about the Silver Age and you broke and were like, no, no, the Silver Age is great. And I'd never, I mean, I started with, I actually started with Age of Apocalypse, but then immediately went back um, from the start of Claremont. So for me, the Silver Age was kind of felt like backpedaling, felt like going back and reading something that seems so much older and, and wasn't, it wasn't foundational right, for it was, me. It was, it was ancient history that got swept away when the new stuff started, but the new stuff was its own foundation to you. And you started explaining um, about when you'd started reading it and the stuff that had grabbed you and all, all of these things. And, and there was all this stuff that I just never noticed and it blew my mind. And I went back and you know reread a bunch of it and liked it a lot more that time. And so... Miles, unfortunately, does not use social media and so has missed this formative experience. So we're hoping I, we can heard catch him it. up. <laughs> well, in my case, I started reading the X-Men in 1974, just before Giants of X-Men 1 in 1975. Um, but I started reading it as back issues. I had started reading Marvel Comics uh, by buying a couple of comics off the newsstand. One of them was an issue of Daredevil that was continued. I went looking for a comic book store uh, because I wanted to find out more about this Daredevil character. And while I was there, I was buying back issues of stuff. And uh, I bought X-Men 37 and 39 because 37 was was at the front of a, a long box of comics. And the cover had the X-Men on trial for treason against Homo Superior. And I had no idea who the X-Men were, but I just thought, what a bizarre thing. <laughs> Homo Superior does not sound positive. <laughs> so how would heroes, these guys are obviously heroes, be on trial for treason against bad guys? The comic book cost a dollar. Yes, I spent a dollar on X-Men back issues from the Silver Age, but it, it was 1974. <laughs> and... X-Men 37 is, to my mind, the perfect issue to start reading X-Men with because it starts with this prologue with the mutant master and the changeling. There he is again. That kind of summarizes what's been going on. And then we cut to an airliner, a commercial airliner flying from the U.S. to Europe. And there's a bunch of kids kind of bantering and the airplane is attacked by UFOs. These glowing disks come out of nowhere and they're firing zap rays. As happens. And these five kids... They get up from their seats, they go out past the panicking passengers, kind of brush off the stewardess, open the door to the airplane, and jump out. There has been no indication that they're superheroes. They're just, hey, we're a bunch of sort of college-age-looking kids, and we just jumped out of an airplane. And that's when one of the kids rips the jacket off the back of another kid, and he spreads wings. And one of the falling kids lifts up his sunglasses and fires a blast beam at the UFO and making it blow up. And the girl and the youngest boy there are falling hand in hand, which made me think that Marvel Girl and Iceman must be a couple. And uh, when they get low enough, Jean starts using her telekinesis to swallow their fall. And when they're low enough still, Bobby starts making an ice slide to catch the others and, and, and get them safely to the ground. I feel like if you took that whole scene from the stewardess's point of view, you've just described exactly what we hope to accomplish with the cold opens. <laughs> the stewardess is just, what? In your voice. <laughs> For me, it was like reading an Enid Blyton novel about ordinary kids in the English countryside going off and having adventures and they stop pirates or something. You know, the kind of books that I loved when I was younger. And here are these just five ordinary looking kids and bam, they have superpowers and they're involved in this big old adventure thing. It hooked me really hard because I wasn't coming at it from the point of view of 
this is a superhero series. I was coming at it from the point of view partly of this is a kid's adventure series and part of it from the point of view of this is a science fiction series. Both of those things were things that I was already interested in and, and just, I, I love that about the series. The original series is boarding school adventures with superpowers. That's definitely something that, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if I would say that it's, it was lost, but it definitely changed severely as soon as we got out of the Silver Age. I mean, then it was, I guess, a more traditional superhero book, but more importantly, it wasn't really about these kids anymore. It wasn't really about these teenagers anymore. Well, it changed within the Silver Age, too, because when Professor X dies, they all go off in their separate directions and try to go be adults elsewhere. Yeah, but there's still, there's a sensibility to the book that grows out of it being sort of this boarding school science fiction story, that even when they split apart, Bobby and Hank are still hanging out in Greenwich Village, and they're still dating Vera and Zelda. They're still fitting their normal roles, and they're still doing this youthful, comedic melodrama between each other. The point at which the series changes is when Neil Adams shows up, and all of a sudden, all of the characters, despite the fact that they're supposed to be the strangest teens of all, they all look like they're 28 years old. And they're all angry and clenched all the time. It's but a, Havoc's powers look so good. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> the, the, the Neil Adams X-Men run is classic for a reason. But what I'm pointing out is that it's just a very, very different tone yeah. from even the first issue before. And that tone, the Thomas Adams run, that translated into Claremont and Cochran, Claremont and Byrne, they're building with new characters, admittedly, but they're building on that kind of, of feeling and the stuff beforehand with Don Heck and Werner Roth and Arnold Drake going back to Lee and Kirby, that tone just sort of gets swept to the wayside. Now, I remember when we were talking before, you mentioned we, we've always considered the Silver Age of X-Men to have ended essentially immediately before Giant Size X-Men number one. And you mentioned that you considered it to be that gap right there, like going from, you know, the old YA stuff to sort of the new, more traditional superhero stuff. Well, that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a matter of, I'm trying not to say the word nomenclature. Um, <laughs> Semantics. Very good. I'm an editor. I mean, if you ask me, what's the Silver Age run of X-Men? Then I'd say, well, it's, it's the first run. It's 1 through 66. Mm -hmm. But if you ask me, when does X-Men change in tone? X-Men 57-58, when Neil Adams comes in, the series becomes something else. Despite the fact that they flounder all over the place looking for a way to sell the book, all of those experiments still have a very familiar tone, and it still feels like X-Men. And then Neil's very first page, bam, it's something else. And that something else feels like it has more to do with what comes next. I wonder how much of that is the age difference, because I've always thought of the Claremont run as, as really sort of character-focused and character interaction-driven, even with the big cosmic stuff. But it occurs to me now, thinking of it, that it's really a very different kind of character-focused. It goes from being teenagers to adults, and that's a huge tonal shift, and it's a huge narrative shift. Yeah, even with characters like Kitty Pride or Colossus, who himself is very young, they're dealing with some sort of adult stuff just by virtue of being members of this overall adult team. Well, and with Kitty, she's a kid among adults for her first many, many issues. It's X-Men has a context. This youthful stuff is kind of off to the side. In the original run of X-Men, that is the context. The fact that there's this, this very youthful stuff that they're going off and hanging out in a, in a Greenwich Village coffee bar or they're having birthday parties or they're going out for skating parties. The substance 
of the series that happens in between the adventures is this white bread Westchester County boarding school character drama stuff, as opposed to apocalyptic thriller character stuff, which is what we got later. I guess along those lines, we've talked a lot about how the characters themselves change in their portrayal and sort of what they were up to. The central metaphor, sort of what mutants were, what mutants represented and how they were portrayed, you know, changes a lot over time as well. It's baked into the concept right from the beginning that the X-Men is a book about prejudice. The initial concept of the X-Men is there are bad guys out there. There are evil mutants. And if they go unopposed, the public is going to think, oh, mutants are like that. Mutants are evil. Let's round them up and wipe them out. So for their own protection, mutants who aren't out to enslave the world need to step up and say, hi there, we're mutants. We're good guys. We're going to prove we're good guys by knocking down that guy in the bucket helmet over there and saving you all from him. This goes back to, even before X-Men, the, the, the pulp science fiction roots of, of the material in Slan and uh, Wilmer Shiraz's uh, Children of the Atom and Henry Kuttner's Mutant, where they're all about this struggle between the good faction and the evil faction of the next step in human evolution. This is specifically the bald telepathic next step of human evolution, right? Well, particularly in, in Henry Kuttner's, his mutant stories were called baldy stories because <laughs> the next step of human evolution was bald and telepathic. And it's pretty clear that that's where Professor Xavier came from. Oh man, a race of Charles Xavier's. I don't know if the world could survive that. Maybe there's just one going at a time because they just all take turns faking their own deaths. <laughs> but anyway, so we've got this idea of mutants as a symbol of prejudice. What Lee and Kirby were building on through the pulp science fiction that they were inspired by was experiences that a lot of liberal Jews had growing up in the United States. Magneto and the evil mutants is kind of a, a metaphor for the protocols of the elders of Zion. And there's also a lot going on there with socialism and red under the bed. You know, your daughter could be dating one and you wouldn't even know. And I feel like maybe at this point, it occurs to me that this is something that's at least very much within our frame of reference. And I don't know to what extent it's going to be for listeners just of, of sort of the relationship between working class Judaism and socialism and, and labor organizing in that you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. You see Superman early on coming very, very much out of that tradition, too. Yeah. And for any listeners who have somehow not managed to read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay yet, um, that deals very directly with it. It's yeah, really that's, worth it. that's a great window onto that. Right. So the X-Men are coming out of out of that tradition. And what I don't know that Stan and Jack knew they were doing was they were building this metaphor for prejudice stories pretty quickly. You know, later on, it, it turned into a metaphor for the uh, African-American struggle. And then later on, we had the legacy virus and it was a, a, a metaphor for the gay rights struggle. And any sort of outsider group you want to project onto the X-Men, you can but back then, the original idea was these guys are mutants and they're stepping up and saying they're mutants so that they're a public symbol of resistance to the evil half. And what this has turned into over the years is a costumed group of violent, superpowered people who fight other costumed, violent, superpowered people. It's almost as if everybody out there is scared of Muslims because of Muslim extremists. So we're going to gather together 
well-meaning Muslims and we're going to put them in a secret school and we're going to train them to be super warriors and then you're only going to see them when they go fight other Muslims and do millions of dollars in property damage. That'll make everybody not scared anymore. <laughs> it's one of those things where, you know, yes, we're totally helping people, but it's really not the best way to do it PR-wise. Back in 1963 when the X-Men started, that was perhaps the best shot that they had or because they were pulling it from science fiction roots the science fiction stories were happening in future worlds where you could overturn the social order and build things out of the wreckage but these days i look at the x-men and go why are they not on twitter they were for a while why don't they have their own youtube channel you know, one of my ideas when I was thinking, what would I do if I wrote X-Men, was I wanted Scott Summers to go to Warren Worthington and say, hey, Warren, you have all the money. We're buying a cable channel, and we're going to call it XTV. <laughs> and we're going to actually do stories in which the narrative only the reader gets to see is shown to the general public. So instead of the general public only seeing the mutants as people who show up and get into fights and knock buildings down, we're going to explore the why of it. We're going to profile mutants who are willing to step forward and show you what their very ordinary life is like. So you don't get the idea that Professor Xavier's dream of peaceful coexistence between mutants and humans involves dressing up in spandex and training to be a super warrior. That if you're learning how to cope with your mutant powers, you can go become an accountant or a college professor or a fashion model or whatever. I feel like what you've just described is my perennial frustration with writers who don't know how to tell interesting stories about Cypher. Oh, about Doug Ramsey? (laughs) Yeah, who has literally the most useful power. He can speak, he can communicate and understand any language. That's phenomenal. That should be so useful and it should be so interesting. And instead people are like, well, have him merge with Warlock and have power armor because punching. Yes, because if the stories are about punching then the ability to understand what the other guy says while he's swinging a sword at your head is not as useful as the ability to punch him back. But the X-Men story shouldn't be only about punching. They're an advocacy group. From the very beginning, they have a symbolic role to play, and that role is to say, look, we are different from those other guys. So they need to say and do things that are different from those other guys that aren't just punching. So if you can pick point in the Silver Age to diverge, to push it in that direction, where would you put that split? Oddly enough, it's X-Men 48 with the uh, next issue blurb about Metoxo the Lava Man, and here we are tied into <laughs> and then, your, So, so it, you'd bring in Metoxo, and he would, he would broker world peace? <laughs> no, no, I go back to the beginning of that with one of the oddest transitions in X-Men history. When the X-Men split up and they go their separate ways, Hank and Bobby go on doing the same sort of thing they were doing before and Warren never got a solo issue you know the only issue he got was labeled the high-flying angel but in fact it was part of an Avengers crossover and the rest of the team was all there anyway but Scott and Gene set up these new occupations for themselves apparently if you want to be a top fashion model all you have to do is ask (laughs) because or be drawn by the right artist Because Jean, with no experience whatsoever, on the first page is modeling bikinis. She's not merely modeling bikinis. The director hired four models for this shoot, and the only one he's shooting is Jean. 
Well, was was she living with Millie the model at this point? Was could there have been like nepotism and cross referrals going on? It's possible. Maybe <laughs> she met uh, met Millie back at uh, Metro University when she was hanging out with the Cobalt Man. But Scott has gotten himself a job as a radio commentator because that's another kind of job you can get with no experience. Uh, uh, Bobby, can you speak to this? <laughs> thumbs up. Can't see uh, thumbs up. So, yes. so he's recorded the first in a series of reports from inside City Hall, where he's holding the mayor's feet to the fire on campaign promises the mayor has not lived up to. Aside from the fact that this is not really the sort of career you set up for yourself between issues, it's very, very Scott Summers. He's serious. He's focused on something important. Even though the the radio station also plays pop music, he he makes a dismissive remark about the chocolate covered ash can. Um, God, I love the band names from that era, yeah. the, the, the made up ones. We should we should do a roundup of those this week. You'll have to check old Teen Titans issues too. But at one point, I wanted to write this X Men series that filled in the gap between '66 and and Giant Size X Men number one. Um, I pitched it a couple of years before John pitched the Hidden Years. I called it the secret years. And I am sure I was not the first to pitch it. John was the first to get somebody to say yes. But what I would have revealed if I'd been doing that was Scott never stopped being a radio commentator. From that point on, it was always what he was doing in the background because the series never actually says he stopped. So he could have become the Rachel Maddow of the mutant universe. He could be the liberal conscience of that world ferreting out the truth and exposing the truth and much more importantly for for their issues communicating with ordinary human beings in a way that doesn't involve dressing up in spandex and knocking down buildings so that would have given him the perfect foundation to then start up a youtube channel or a cable station that's all about mutants and so forth if you'd told me at the beginning of this episode that I would leave it resenting X-Men The Hidden Years even more than I already did, <laughs> I would not have believed you, and yet. Yeah, man, Cyclops, I, I, would, I would read the hell out of that series. I think one of the things I love about that scene, I mean, Cyclops is a radio commentator for four panels, but it's the only thing in the Silver Age, and mostly for years beyond, it's virtually the only thing he does that involves having a private life. Yeah, I think the next time is probably when he's sailing around with Lee Forrester, and they, they can't sail for more than a few issues before they crash into Magneto's Island. Right. Well, well, first they run into despair, and then they sail for, like, three pages and crash into Magneto's Island. But I'm fascinated by any time we get a hook into what these people are like when they're not doing the superhero thing. When I did Thunderbolts, the thing that, that immediately grabbed me was I went back to the origins of the characters and went, oh, the Beetle wants respect. That's his driving force. Pretending to be a superhero is going to get him respect. That's going to transform him. Oh, Goliath, uh, Eric Yostin, Power Man, all he ever does is follow somebody else's orders. So that gives me a hook to build his character on. You go back to when Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch joined the Avengers, we get the confession that the Scarlet Witch has always wanted to be an actress. Now, it seems that any Stan Lee female character has secret desires to be either an actress or a fashion model. Well, th those are the two lady jobs. <laughs> right. That doesn't really go much of anywhere. But Quicksilver always wanted to be in the circus. What an ambition. Don't you want to see that? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> and even with this horrible constipated Martinette Quicksilver that he became, 
Don't you want to see him take his daughter to the circus? Don't you want to see him perform and see him find that childhood joy again? Because there's a hook for it. I also really want to see all new X Factor change tone somewhat from from the corporate super superhero team to the circus team. That would be so cool. <laughs> how how great would that be? I mean, look at the current lineup. They could do that. They really could. They could. I feel like uh, the era of the backup story is long since over, and I miss them. Just, you know, a few pages at the end of every issue that's a separate story. And I'd love to see just like, you know, the private lives of the X-Men. That's actually another one of the things that I came up with when I wished I could write X-Men was I wanted to take X-Men and Uncanny X-Men and put it all, you know, basically in the same book so that instead of having this biweekly two different series, you've got one double sized issue coming out a month and you'd have the lead, you know, apocalyptic thriller stuff going on. But in the in, in the back, you'd have a couple of stories of what they're doing when they're not doing that. You know, here's a story about Bobby Drake, accountant, meeting a girl. <laughs> I guess these days, maybe not a girl. Here's Banshee recovering from his latest, you know, wounds off at Cassidy Keep somewhere. With and, the leprechauns. And dealing with a story that doesn't have to be about the end of the world and doesn't have to be about destroying things. It's about coping with the existence of being a mutant so that you'd have the ability to do the big action thriller stuff but you'd also have the room to do the character exploration stuff that doesn't immediately have to run aground on Magneto's Island and turn into a thriller. Okay, so I've got a pitch for this because I feel like if if you did that Silver Age split-off series, if you did X-Men The Secret Years, then there's there's a built-in really good setting for the X-Men just being people as a backup story. It's got, you know, its own supporting cast, it's got, you know, functional things, and that is that's the coffee shop. You're talking about the coffee a go go. I am talking about the coffee a go go. I, I never really focus much on the Silver Age myself, but that is what has always stuck with me all these years. Like more than the fights they had, more than the costume changes, is that place, is that scene where everyone becomes obsessed with Beast's feet when he takes off his shoes and this this small cult forms around it. It's it's bizarre. I would like to posit that Bernard the poet is the Peter Corbo of the Silver Age. I think that's a really good parallel, actually. The coffee go-go, like, the X-Men just keeps showing up here. Uh, specifically, I know, like, Bobby and uh, and Hank do a whole, whole bunch. Well, when we first introduced to the Coffee a Go-Go, it's Bobby and Hank's place. It's a place they know because Bobby likes the waitress there. And the waitress is Zelda, and she keeps coming. Zelda is my favorite X-Men character. Zelda, Zelda is great. Zelda is a, a, a wise-cracking waitress in the Gene Arthur school. The few times I've gotten to write dialogue, maybe it's just once between her and Bobby, it's fantastically fun because Bobby's a goof and Zelda's a cynic. So she says these barbed things to him and he just brushes them off because she's cute. Uh, she likes the fact that he's so upbeat. He finds her funny because she's smart. This is great couple. But whenever we needed to see the X-Men go off and, and have their own lives, you know, Warren would go on vacation somewhere and Scott would stay at the school and think sad thought balloons about, uh, <laughs> about Jean. And Bobby and Hank would go to the Coffee A-Go-Go and banter with Zelda, um, or later they'd involve Vera, who was Hank's girlfriend. So those two were the characters that gave you the, this is the private life aspect of the X-Men, and that private life aspect would be, they go to the Coffee A-Go-Go. We even got just this absolutely wonderful set piece in issue 32 or so. And uh, yeah, it's a two-part juggernaut story, but it, it starts off with 
you know, everybody's at the coffee a go go, and 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 they're celebrating Bobby's birthday, and and Bernard the poet reads a poem, and they're attacked by motorcycle thugs because what the hell? We've got to get some action in here. <laughs> this is around the time where. Scott goes off to be broody and Byronic and Gene follows him to confront him and make him speak up about his feelings. And it's the beginning, therefore, of the Scott-Gene relationship. Warren goes off to a place next door and finds Candy Southern and introduces her into the book. So it's just this, within the space of two issues, everything gets moving in terms of the X-Men's formerly static private life stuff. And it all happens at the Coffee A Go Go. Well, and Bernard the Poet falls from grace. Bernard the Poet sells out. <laughs> Bernard the Poet reads a poem that he has written for the occasion, and he abandons blank verse. And his poem, I know it by heart, <laughs> is A birthday's like a comely lass, from shadowed night she doth appear. Yet all the while, you know, alas, you'll only see her once a year. Oh, Bernard, I never learned to snap, but I totally would right now, sell out or not. There you go. Thanks, Rachel. I did not look this up, by the way. Yeah, I, yeah, I've, no, we I've, can we can verify that. He, that was from memory. I've known this since about 1975. I, I think the only thing I can do that with is all the poems from The Dark is Rising. Yeah, likewise. I, I, I can only do it with the main one, actually. You can, you can do the weird one from The Grey King. Um, on the day of the dead, when the year two dies, must the youngest open the oldest hills through the door of the birds when the breeze breaks, and it just goes on from See, there. See, I can just do when the dark comes rising, six shall turn it back. Three, three from, from the, the circle, circle, three from the track. <laughs> Wood, bronze, iron, water, water, fire, fire stone, stone, five shall, shall return, and one go alone. Iron for the birthday, bronze carried long, wood from the burning, stone out of song, fire from the candle ring, water from the thaw, six signs, the circle and the grail gone before. Uh, anyway, <laughs> All right, trust, so that's, I can do this. That, that's going to be our spinoff uh, podcast. Rachel Miles explained the dark is rising. It's going to be way shorter. I have exactly two party tricks. That is one of them. And the other one is the entire uh, Grey Summer's family tree in under a minute, which I am not going to do now. So as far as the Silver Age, I mean, I, I got to say, since we've been talking about this, I'm a hell of a lot more sold on it. But for, for listeners, because we've mostly focused on the show, like we've said, on the Bronze Age, I guess what's the sort of um, the elevator pitch for why the Silver Age is awesome? Coffee a go-go. <laughs> right there. Just right there. <laughs> um, there's a reason that X-Men was not one of Marvel's better sellers during the Silver Age and why they kept floundering around trying to find it a, way, a, a way to make it sell. The big adventure stuff is often fairly weak. There are some very cool stories. There's the first Juggernaut story, the first Sentinel story, the climax of the Factor 3 story, which is where I came in, the Jim Steranko story with Magneto and Lorna Dane. But these are generally high points that in between they fight, you know, the Maha Yogi <laughs> and, and Grotesque the subhuman. And, and fail to fight Metoxo. Um, these are not names to conjure with. Um, but what's going on in between all of that stuff, you've got your your big moments. You've got 15 or so issues that are plotted and at least laid out, if not fully drawn, by Jack Kirby. Um, you've got Neil Adams at the other end. You've got various high points in between. But what keeps the thread going is this engaging boarding school comedy character interaction. And there isn't anything else in Marvel Comics, certainly, that's that's like that, that has that flavor. So um, our first question is from uh, Holly uh, Najafali on Twitter, who asks, what's the one Silver Age storyline you can constantly go back to without getting bored? That assumes that there are stories like that. And in fact, it assumes that there's one. Honestly, you know, if I have to pick one, I'm going to pick 
the coffee a go-go. <laughs> and I don't know if I'd pick one particular story, because you're talking about the one with the, the, the barefoot beats where they draw runic faces on, on Hank's feet. The, that's also the one, I think it's that one, where they, they, they get a call from, uh, from, from Scott and they say, "Oh, oh, call in from Scott. We gotta go." And Zelda says, "Why do you have to go? Who's you know, who's Scott?" And they go, "Oh, didn't you know he's a superpowered mutant?" She goes, "Oh, well, ask a silly question." <laughs> um, you know, then there's the one in in issue thirty two or where, wherever that is. There's the scene where they all go on a skating party and Bobby can't skate. And it's not until after uh, the, everyone else has left that he, he, he ditches his clothes and skates and turns into Iceman and starts doing fantastic and gets attacked by the super adaptoid because, you know, why not? It's that stuff. And the place that that stuff is the most concentrated is Bobby's 18th birthday issue. That would be the one issue of the Silver Age X-Men that I can just go back to over and over again. I'm actually, I'm going to steal the next question. I'm going to ask one. And I'm going to ask, Kurt, have you read X-Men First Class? Because it occurs to me, that strikes me as, as the recent X-Men series that's been most in that spirit. Now, are you talking First Class or Season 1, Rachel? I am talking First Class. I'm talking um, the Jeff Parker series. I've read pieces of it. Within the first four issues or so, they hit some continuity stuff that just didn't make any sense, where continuity from late in the run was being treated as if it was active early in the run. And I went, wait a minute, wait a minute, this doesn't fit together. And my nerd self was thrown out of my audience self. I think it's actually a fully separate continuity. But I don't want a fully separate continuity. I mean, you know, these days I, I might embrace a whole different continuity. But at the time, what that made me do was it made me stop reading the series regularly and I'd read it off. You know, I'd, if there was a backup story by Colleen Coover, then bam, I'd get that issue because those were all the adorable. What Jeff and, and his various cohorts did on that book, I haven't read it all, but it, it did very much have that spirit. Okay, so we have one more question. This is from Bill on Twitter. And Bill asks, would you consider writing an untold tales of X-Men featuring the Silver Age team like you did with Spider-Man? What are the types of storylines you would want to focus on if you did? Well, I, I think I've mentioned some of the storylines, or at least setups, that I, I would have done with a book like that if they'd uh, gone for it when I pitched it. These days, the answer is no, I wouldn't do it. And the reason is because I want to concentrate as much as I can on stuff that I create myself and stuff that I control and own myself. If I wanted to do something with the spirit of the original X-Men, I would try to create something new that had that spirit so that I wasn't petitioning Marvel to let me use this cool stuff from their history that they don't seem to have any real interest in. Um, instead, what I'd do is I'd, I'd build something in which I didn't have to get anybody's permission. I didn't have to convince anybody that the material was was uh, was worth using because it would be the foundation of something new. And actually, speaking of that, what books do you have coming out right now? I know there's Tooth and Claw, which is going to be starting in November. And is yes. Astro City currently ongoing? Astro City is currently ongoing. Uh, let's see. I think issue 14 just came out. That's 14 of the new series. It's... Uh, something like issue 73 overall but those are the those are the two current books i've got coming out astro city from vertigo and uh tooth and claw starts up in three months or so from from image um and there's other stuff i'm working on but it's not yet scheduled not yet announced so it's not time to reveal it well, I think that's um, all the time we have for today. But Kurt, thank you so, so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure. 
Yes. So Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Bobby Roberts, who's also the co-host of the awesome Welcome to That Whole Thing, which you can check out at welcometothatwholething.com. And you should also check out our website, which is at rachelandmiles.com. We have visual companion posts for every episode. Um, Those go up on Sundays, so if you're listening from Comics Alliance, you should check back then. Articles, fan art, a fact that uh, we've been putting up lately, and all sorts of glorious glory. Um, If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to check out our Patreon. You can find a link from rachelandmiles.com, and man, I'm so excited because we are getting really really close to the milestone goal that involves doing an annual zine and i want to make zines with you again yeah yeah we did the pete and pete one ages ago we did two pete and pete ones that's right you can find a link to that on rachelandmiles.com and also to rate and review us on itunes and stitcher new episodes air at comicsalliance.com every thursday and at rachelandmiles.com itunes and stitcher on sundays and you're gonna have to bring me back because we never talked about Marvels. This is going to be sort of the Scheherazade thing where we keep on having that as a hook where we have to just keep on bringing you back in. (laughs) So next time, uh, we are going to be doing a very special episode. But not not that kind of very special episode. Because, well, we don't talk about our relationship very much. Specifically, we're really entertained by the idea of podcaster shipping wars, and we'd like to encourage those. So um, we don't really talk about this, but we're, we're married. And specifically, as of September 4th, we will have been married for 10 years. 10 freaking years. This is specifically Anniversary X, a friend of ours pointed out, which I think is kind of great. <laughs> it absolutely is. So we are going to abuse uh, that event by doing two things, uh, one of which will be taking our first ever week off the podcast. We are going on an actual honest-to-God vacation, which I don't think we haven't done that in a lot of years. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know that Scott and Jean are kind of our couple. We've been together and known each other since we were teenagers. I'm kind of an uptight jerk. Miles comes back from the dead fairly regularly. And I'm telekinetic. And so we've decided, because we want to be sappy and romantic for once, uh, something we normally avoid doing, that we are going to skip ahead a while to X-Men Volume 2, number 30 specifically the wedding of Cyclops and Jean Grey. So uh, listen then for one played by Cats Laughing from Space, some truly questionable wedding guest fashion choices, and a whole lot of romance. And the nicest vows ever. (laughs) 